You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Happy Christmas Eve. If you would turn in your Bible to Luke chapter two, we're going to look at a passage that we just read moments ago, Luke two. We're going to be looking at verses eight to 20. Thank you, Adam and Ensemble, Band Ensemble, and all of those who read the scriptures for us this evening and it blessed us. We ask now, as we go to prayer, that the Lord would continue to bless the preaching of his word. Father of mercy, we come to you uh, through the Son of God, who indeed took on human flesh that he might obey and suffer as a man, as our substitute, but be raised from the dead. Uh, by your resurrection power. And, and Father, ascend to your right hand where he rules and reigns by his word and spirit as evidenced by the people who are gathered here this evening. Lord, as we look at this very familiar passage, we pray that you would edify your people, that you would grow us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for those, Lord, who have never trusted in Jesus, who have never repented of their sin, Lord, you would even use the, this occasion to draw them to yourself in repentance and faith and be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every year since December the 9th, 1965, with the premiere of the Chris, Charlie Brown Christmas special on CBS, uh, the world has seen the angst-ridden Charlie Brown search for the true meaning of Christmas, which has opened the door every year for millions upon millions of children and adults alike to hear Linus read from our current passage this evening. And right there in the middle of speaking, Linus, insecure Linus, drops his security blanket as he reads those words, fear not. Now, countless families like mine, my brother is here uh, this evening, he remembers this, long before technology allowed us to record the Charlie Brown Christmas special, we would consult the TV guide, making sure we weren't going to miss that special every year, and we didn't miss it. Five decades plus fans' devotions have not waned. For example, in 2020, Apple TV Plus purchased the rights to the show and they did the unthinkable. They placed it behind a paywall. Well, Peanuts fans were outraged. They struck back on social media and they launched an online petition to get the Christmas special back on the networks. And Apple quickly reversed their course. But why does a simple cartoon that lacks the technological advances of, of the cartoons we see today, why does it still strike a chord with viewers? Well, first of all, I believe that all of us or most of us can relate to Charlie Brown's angst at Christmas. 
for a variety of reasons. Perhaps some struggle with loneliness, uh, more specifically during the time of Christmas than any other time of the year, or maybe unfulfilled longings of Christmas time. Maybe someone died in your family that year in the last couple of years, and this is the first Christmas without your loved one. Uh, there's a variety of reasons, or maybe it just might be family drama. But related to this, I think we all intuitively recognize that there is no part of our world, naturally speaking, that's not broken. We know intuitively, even if you're not a believer, you know peace is missing. Every aspect of the creation lacks shalom, the Hebrew word for, for peace and well-being. And so we're drawn to the promise of peace that Linus cites from this passage. Finally, I believe the reason we are so attracted to this show is that the meaning of Christmas, the birth of King Jesus, is what our hearts have been made for. Ironically, it's the, it's the actions of another king. We've already read about that this evening. Uh, that sets the context for the birth of King Jesus. If you look in chapter 2, verse 1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Caesar, this Caesar, was the first to be called Augustus, which means holy and revered, around 27 B.C. Up to that time, that title, Augustus, was reserved for the gods. Yes, plural, gods, the Roman gods. And so now, for the first time under his rule, great strides were being taken to identify the Caesar as a god. And so the world at this time had a false god, Caesar, a false savior, Caesar, and a false king. And this is the background for King Jesus's birth. And by means of that census that was decreed by Caesar Augustus, we have uh, Caesar unwittingly contributing to the fulfillment of a prophecy that had been made 700 years before. In Micah chapter 5, a passage you know very well, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. So Caesar's census was for taxes, and we need to hear this, but the Lord even uses secular governments to fulfill his glorious and wise and good purposes. And so Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem because as we see in that passage we read earlier, Joseph was of the house and the lineage of David. It was somewhere between 75 miles and 90 miles that they traveled to Bethlehem. And there she gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the meaning of the birth. As we see in our passage, 
starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, almost as surprising as an angel appearing to them in the field is the fact that the first persons to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the coming of King Jesus, were shepherds. You see, the shepherds were, were considered lowly. They, they were one of the lowest classes of people. Uh, even in the, the Jewish world, they were considered insignificant in Jewish society. In fact, their testimony was inadmissible in the courts, which drives home the veracity of this passage. For if, if just a mere person, a man, was writing this passage trying to defend that Jesus is the Christ, they would not have started with shepherds because the shepherds were not considered respectable and their, their testimonies were not admissible in a court of law. Just like uh, after Christ was raised, the first witnesses were women. And so this just speaks to the veracity of, of this account. Like everything else in the incarnation story, this turns our expectations on their head. Well, look at me in verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. You could literally translate the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Of course, Gentile Luke, the author of this gospel, is writing to a Gentile named Theophilus to drive home that this Jewish Savior, this Jewish king who had just been born, isn't just for the Jews. He's for, notice, all the people. All the people, Jews and Gentiles, every tribe and tongue. There is no class of people that does not need Jesus. And on this Christmas Eve, every believer here should be grateful that missionaries believed this message and their mission's efforts eventually got to you. We're all the products of missionaries who believed that this gospel is for all the peoples. But unless all the peoples understand who this savior, who this king is, um, it will do us no good. So who, who is he? Well, notice from this passage, it says, us a great, it says a great deal about him. First of all, it says, He's the ruler of Israel. Notice, he's from the city of David. Now, where do I get that ruler of Israel? Well, Micah 5 that I read said the ruler of Israel would come and he would be born in the city of David. He would be born in Beth Bethlehem. And so this passage tells us the ruler has been born. He will be the ruler one day of the world. And one of the evidences that we're saved, it's important for us to recognize that tonight, one of the real evidences that we have been saved is that we submit to his rule. 
as it is revealed in the 66 book canon. I'm hearing a lot of professing Christians today who want to take out certain parts of the Bible and edit the Bible to fit their ethics. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is ruler and he rules through his authoritative word. He's the ruler of the world. And one day every tribe and tongue will recognize that. But notice as well, he's the savior. It's right there. He's the savior. A savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus has come to save sinners from their sin, to save sinners from Satan, and to save sinners from the holy and righteous wrath of God. How will he do that? He will come as the substitute, and as the substitute, he will take the wrath of God. He will satisfy the wrath of God for our sin. And then God will raise him from the grave, reversing the verdict on every person who believes that message. So this tells us uh, that basically Luke's readers, us, are the kind of people who need a savior. There's no one here that is an exception to that. Third, he's the Christ. Literally, Christ is, Jesus is the anointed one. Now, what does it mean that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah? He is the one who's been appointed and empowered to act in God's place. That's what it means that he's Messiah. And then finally, he's the Lord. He's the Lord. Uh, this speaks to his deity. It takes us all the way back to Exodus 3 when God revealed his name as Lord. But it also speaks to his authority, his sovereignty, his power, and his presence with those who believe in him. So he's the ruler of Israel. He's the savior. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. This is what's been revealed by this angel to these shepherds. Interestingly, this is the first time the words Christ and Lord are ever brought together. In other words, the promised anointed Christ Lord is none other than God himself in the flesh but the paradox of an infinite, glorious God embodying finite, inglorious flesh, though it's prophesied in the Old Testament, for instance, Isaiah chapter 9, it's difficult to process. And hence the sign here in verse 12. Look with me in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The angel had to tell them this because otherwise they would have never believed it. But the incarnation signals the great reversal of things. And, and it's because of this good news that the angel punctuates his proclamation with praise. But notice he doesn't do it alone. Verse 13, and suddenly, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Now, keep in mind, the shepherds have a front row seat of this worship service. So you have this multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And so the first angel is like an announcer standing on stage 
And then the curtain is opened, and suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of angels who are engaged in this worship service. Perhaps, and and many commentators have commented on this, maybe every one of God's angels were there because of the significance of this moment. But, But this is the third song in Luke. We saw the first song. Uh, Mary's Magnificent. Uh, Then we saw Zechariah's Benedictus. Uh, This particular song has been called the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. All of these these songs were were, uh, framed in the Latin that speak of the first words of the songs uh, that we have been looking at. But what makes this song unique is that it's sung by angels. Now, this isn't the first time the angels have worshiped the Son of God. Uh, They were created to worship the Son of God. But there is something unique about this in that now the Son of God has taken on human flesh. He's the eternal Son of God, but now he has taken on human flesh. Why? To redeem those of us who are fallen human, fallen humans. And, and, and the angel here, as a result, pronounces a benediction. And he's going to say, this isn't just for God's glory, this is for the good of man. Notice in the second part of verse 14, and on earth, peace. That's what every heart longs for. Everything we do, behind that is a, the motivation is for peace, Right? On earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Peace is one of the key blessings of the Christian experience. Ultimately, uh, there's only one peacemaker. And, And everything else or everyone else that promises peace is a sham. There's only one peacemaker. It's the one that's been born here in Bethlehem. The scripture reveals that peace has a threefold expression. First and foremost, this is the most important thing. We need peace with God. You're not born with peace with God. You're born an enemy to God. The scripture tells us that. Uh, The scripture says that God's wrath is on our sin. And the scripture says that we are in rebellion to this holy and righteous God. Our greatest need is to have peace with God. Therefore, having though been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Jesus Christ comes as the great peacemaker and he satisfies God's wrath on our sin and by the gift of the Holy Spirit, he redirects us former rebels to God in gratitude and love and faith. And so this objective peace is the most important expression of peace. But then there's a a second kind of peace, personal peace. It's that subjective peace, but it's supernatural. It's supernatural to have this kind of peace in a sin-stained, sin-broken world. One of my best friends lost his son last Sunday night in a horrible tragedy. And he wrote a letter to his church down in in Florida. And this letter could only be explained as a supernatural grace on this man. 
in spite of this horrible tragedy, losing his 18-year-old son, there's peace. There's peace in their hearts, even in the midst of deep-seated grief. It's supernatural, though. He's resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third kind of peace is peace with others. When you have peace with God and you have peace within, it will reflect itself in, in horizontal peace, peace with others. What a contrast to the kind of peace that Caesar Augustus offered. A, a peace by compulsion as nations were plundered and people were enslaved and murdered. That's just an example of how any kind of peacemaker replacement works, whether it's the government or whether it's some kind of drug or, or a hobby or some kind of sinister pleasure, peacemaker replacements never provide what they ought or promise. The message of Christmas is true peace on earth begins with God and sinners reconciled. But I want you to note, this peace isn't for everyone. He says it's only for those with whom he is well pleased. Verse 14. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean it depends on us pleasing God by our obedience? No. If, if our obedience could please God, the cross would be unnecessary. The cross is the great event in history that demonstrates and communicates we can never please God. So what does this mean? With whom he is well pleased. Well, if you look over in chapter three, real quickly, in verse 22, at Jesus' baptism, God the Father pronounces a benediction on the Son. And here's what he says. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Isn't that remarkable? And so what this tells us is that the way you become well-pleasing to the Father is not by your obedience. You could never obey him enough. It's by uniting yourself to the well-pleasing Son by faith. And so that when you trust in the Son of God, the one in whom the Father said, this is my Son with whom I am well-pleased, you now are pronounced as well-pleasing sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. Peace is offered to those who come to the well-pleasing son. And that brings us to the last part of this passage. We'll move through this quickly. The effect of the birth of Jesus. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known to the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She's pondering them because she knew the one she was bearing. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So do you see what the shepherds are doing here? They, they're essentially imitating the angels. But this is what the gospel does. It brings us to faith in Jesus Christ 
and then in turn leads us to witness and to worship. But the irony, I think, is so remarkable. The shepherds whose testimonies were inadmissible in a court of law are the first witnesses of the incarnation, the birth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because of any inherent merits. In fact, they had demerits, but because of their faith in the well-pleasing son. They were now well-pleasing to the father because they were united by faith to the well-pleasing son. And the witnesses of these shepherds result in three responses. Notice verse 18, the amazement of the hearers. Again, they wondered at what the shepherds told them. If the gospel does not cause us to wonder, to be in amazement, something's wrong. But notice as well, the pondering of Mary. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then finally, the praise that we see exemplified by the shepherds, glorifying and praising God. So as we close here, why is this account here? Well, it's here because this is what happened. But it was originally written to Theophilus, the most excellent Theophilus. Now, why do I describe him that way? Well, Luke describes him that way, but what does that mean? Elsewhere in Luke's writings, the most excellent ones were Roman officials, like Festus and Felix, most excellent ones. Theophilus was very clearly a Roman official who had been promoted in the Roman government. How do you get promoted in the Roman government? You bow the knee to Caesar. But Theophilus had been converted. We know that because Luke says, I'm writing these things to give you certainty concerning the things you've been taught. He had been taught these things. He had believed these things. But now Theophilus was starting to suffer for his faith. You don't keep your position in the Roman government when you trust in Jesus alone as Savior. Luke is writing this to Theophilus, and he's writing this to you so that you can have certainty concerning the things we've been taught concerning the Son of God. He is worthy to suffer for. He is worthy to give your life away for. This was the word he was giving Theophilus. It's intended to provoke amazement. It's intended to provoke pondering and treasuring and praise in Theophilus and in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. We thank you that even though it's simple, it is utterly profound. It has enough truth in it to save any sinner. It has enough truth in it to edify and stir the affections of every believer. We pray that it would have that effect tonight. And we ask this for the, the glory and the renown of King Jesus, our Savior and Lord and Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time 
or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.